0: Matt Woodley, one of the uh, part-time pastor here, and there's a rumor that soon I'm going to be full-time um, September 1st, is that true? It is, so, Okay. so anyway, still just wanted to double-check, make sure we're still on. Um, I read a news story a couple weeks ago about uh, the actress Amy Adams. She was on a flight, she's filming actress Amy Adams as an uh, Oscar-nominated actress, young actress, she was on a flight, uh, filming in Detroit, and she was on a flight from Detroit to LA, and of course she was seated in first class with all the first class people. And she spotted a US serviceman sitting in coach and she, according to another first class passenger who was reporting on this, uh, Ms. Adams turned to the uh, personnel and said that she wanted to switch seats with the servicemen, so the serviceman who had no idea who was doing this or who was behind this, was invited to come into first class, and she was ushered into regular coach class. Well, there was another reporter on the flight who, as soon as she arrived in L.A., started tweeting about what Amy Adams had done, and so reporters gathered around Ms. Adams, and they asked her what she had done, and why she had done this, and she said, basically, look, I didn't, I didn't really do this for the attention. My father was a serviceman, and so I know what it's like to be a serviceman, and it was just my way of honoring our troops and bringing attention to them. It's just a really nice, heartwarming story. Now, journalists sometimes call this kind of story a man bites dog kind of story, you know. When a dog bites a man, that's not really news, you know, that happens all the time. Unless there's something strange about wind, dog, man, or whatever. So, um, but when a dog, or when a man bites a dog, well, that's news. It's something that doesn't happen every day. So I was thinking about this story, especially in relation to the passage that we just had read to us. And I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great though, if that wasn't a man bites dog kind of story? Wouldn't that be great if that kind of stuff happened all the time. It was just normal that people treated each other that way. And I'm not just talking about celebrities, but wouldn't it be great if, like, we belong to, like, a whole community of people, a whole, like, small village of people that treated each other with dignity and respect, where the strong cared for the weak, where the, the famous and powerful truly cared for people that are considered nobodies, where the popular cared for the unpopular, where the really super smart and sophisticated cared for people that are not so smart and sophisticated. Wouldn't it be great if you just belonged to a community where there weren't really any class distinctions at all? Where people were just one and truly shared the same dignity and then a status-free community. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, according to this passage this morning, there is such a place. And at least there's supposed to be such a place. It's called the church. It's called the people gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking this morning, well, wow, that's not my experience in church. Maybe you've been wounded by the church. Maybe you've had some really bad experiences. I don't want to gloss over that this morning because that's real pain and real hurt and can be real betrayal. What I want to spend time on this morning is just backing up and and based on this passage, I want to get a glimpse or or maybe even a very powerful gaze, a long vision of what Jesus meant, what the early apostles who followed Jesus meant when they talked about church as the new community of God's people. You heard this really long passage. I intentionally try to include as much as possible because it's really one argument and it starts in chapter 14 verse 1 and if you'll turn there let me just read you these, these two verses because this just summarizes it chapter 14 verse 1 says for the one who is weak in faith welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions and then you flip to Romans fifteen, seven, and it says therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God So here are these two bookends to this really long passage. And you'll notice the same key word in each of those bookends. It's the word welcome. In other words, one of the keys, and it's not the only key, but it's one of the keys to building a church community that you can really love, that we can really love, that Christ could really love, one of those keys is Simply this, welcome people as Jesus has welcomed you. We could also call that the practice of gospel based acceptance. Welcome people as Jesus has welcomed you. Now, there's a problem though. And the problem is, this sounds really simple. Sounds really simple on paper, but we all know that life doesn't work this way. We all know that church doesn't always work this way. Relationships always don't work this way. Well, There's, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, it assumes that this problem is going on. The the whole passage is about a problem in the church in Rome. And it's a problem that has existed in every church through 2,000 years and will exist in every church. It's a problem that can be addressed by the gospel. And here's the problem. The problem is the church is imperfect. And it's imperfect for a lot of reasons, but it's imperfect because people disagree. People have disagreements. People have conflicts. They argue. And this can be quite shocking when we live with the fantasy that church is supposed to be the place where everybody should get along and everybody should see things kind of the same way, my way that's the fantasy that many of us live with you know i've lived with this fantasy i'm the middle child of seven so you probably know it doesn't take you don't need a phd in psychology to know oh man he's probably got issues with like trying to please people you know i want everybody to get along so you know i've been involved in churches for like 40 years i still have remnants of that fantasy that everybody can get along well It's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen for two reasons. Why don't Christians get along? Well, first of all, because we're sinful people. That was explored in Romans chapters 1 through 3. But there's another reason why we don't get along. And that is because sometimes we just have honest disagreements about what I'll call secondary issues of the Christian faith. They're not issues that strike at the heart of the Christian faith. They're not issues about things that, that we have formulated in our creeds. They're not issues that, that Christians have believed firmly and consistently for 2,000 years, issues of, say, sexual morality or marriage or um, that we should have compassion for the poor or things like that. They are secondary issues, issues like cultural issues, issues around how we should eat, issues around politics, issues around Worship styles, or how best to help the poor, or how to raise your kids, or, or how America should get involved in the Middle East. And that problem, disagreeing on secondary issues, is the focus of this passage. So what was going on in the Church of Rome was, was, was it looked like this. There were, there were two groups of people that kind of split into camps and there seemed to be a conflict brewing between these two groups and it kind of fell along cultural ethnic lines more or less so in chapter 15 verse 1 paul says we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves." So there's this conflict between what Paul calls the strong and the weak. Well, who were the weak? The weak weren't weak people physically. They were people that were weak in faith. Now, they looked strong in faith, but they were really, Paul says, that they're really weak in faith. Who were they? Well, they were probably people that grew up in a Jewish culture. They came to know Jesus as Messiah and Lord. But then they took this stuff from their Jewish culture And by the way, this isn't just Jewish people that do this, we all do this. They took stuff from their Jewish culture, they brought it into the faith in Christ, they brought it into the church, and they said, this is the way we used to do things, this is the way we used to eat our meals, this is the way we used to worship, everybody's got to do it this way. If you don't do it this way, you're not going to be as pleasing to God as we are. So it's kind of like this justification by works, we're working harder, we're working it right, and God's really pleased with us, but he's not so sure about you. So, Paul gives two examples chapter 14 verse 2 one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables probably had something to do with jewish dietary laws which people which jesus said are no longer valid but they didn't listen to that they just brought it into the church and said everybody's got to do it the way we do it now you might think wow so glad we don't argue about food in our culture are you kidding? I mean, there is probably no culture on the face of the earth that's been more uptight and argumentative and judgmental about food choices than like middle-class Americans. It's got to be local. No, it's got to be pesticide, pest, pesticide-free. It's got to be organic. What is organic anyway? It's, well, organic is this. No, that's not the right definition of organic. It's got to have no trans fats. It's got to be blah, 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 blah. And so we fight about food like crazy. And everybody's got my way of doing food is right. And then in verse um, 6, they had another argument. Paul said this, or verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So the difference is about how to worship. So people were taking their assumptions about what worship is, and they were saying, this is the right way to do it, and we're more pleasing to God than they do, than they are. You know, As Anglicans, we have a very certain way of worshiping. And I think we're right. I like the way we worship. I had a long journey to come to the Anglican convictions about worship. But you know, there are other denominations around the face of the globe, like Pentecostals, who we would call have like very low liturgy. There's Baptists that have very low liturgy and celebrate communion like once a quarter. Now, I don't agree with that but God is blessing those churches around the globe. God is moving in those churches. So Paul is not talking about things that strike to the core. He's talking about secondary issues. So the problem was that these weak Christians were saying, taking their secondary issues and saying, oh, we got to do this right, or God is not going to be pleased with us. Let me give you an analogy. It's like, this is actually a true thing, in, in Northwestern Montana there's some swinging bridges over the Kootenai River and at one point in the Kootenai River it's, it's like these raging rapids and the, the bridge is, and if you have a, a little uh, issues with uh, fear of heights like I do, it's like really creepy because it swings back and forth and you feel like I'm going to probably fall in. But the bridge is really strong. It's going to hold you. It's held lots of people the bridge is faithful, the bridge is reliable, okay? The bridge is Jesus, okay? I'll just give you the analogy. So the weak Christians, let's just cut to the chase, okay? So the weak Christians are like, they're on the bridge and they're going like, "Uh, I got to get every step right. Sometimes they get down and they crawl. And then the strong Christians are like, woo Jesus is a great bridge, I'm going across, I don't care. So the question becomes, how should the strong Christians relate to the weak Christians? How should the the strong treat the weak? And notice there is one option that seems to be quite popular. It was popular in the church in Rome. It's popular today. It's the way of contempt, the way of judgment, the way of despising your brother or sister because they don't do it right when it comes to these secondary issues. Verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Now, why would Paul say that if it wasn't actually happening? And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 10 Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. See, this way of judgment is very powerful, it's operating in the back of our mind, I think, a lot. We're sizing people up. We're judging them. Oh, look at that guy. I'm not actually pointing to somebody right now, I just want you to know. Look at that guy, man. Dressed like a hipster. Yeah, we know what those guys are like. Pretentious, phony. Look at that guy, he's got a sport coat on. Joseph Aboud, sport coat. What is he trying to prove? Look at that person. Man, he smokes, we know what. I mean, I got some bad habits, but nothing like that, you know. They voted Democrat? She voted Republican? How could any thinking person like me vote that way? Young black man in a hoodie? We know what that means, right? We had a crisis in our culture over that issue. It didn't affect us near as much as our African-American brothers and sisters. Look at that guy raising his hands in worship. Look at those people sitting like cold head of cabbage. Yeah. Maybe this is a little severe, but this judgment goes on in our mind. And the problem wasn't the disagreements on secondary issues because Paul says in verse 6, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Make up your mind. Decide what you believe. The problem was the spirit of judgment. That was like a colony of termites, just gnawing away, unseen, under the surface, striking at the foundation of Christian community. That was the problem. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is to welcome people the way Christ welcomed them. Remember our other bookend, chapter 15, verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this isn't just a good idea. This brings glory to God when we do this. Notice chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In other words, back to our bridge analogy, okay? The strong Christians could easily say, man, slowpokes, I can't wait for them. I got a lot to do. I got places to go. God's really blessed me. I don't have any obligation to them. And this pastor says, no, you you do have an obligation to them. You go back and help them. Even the most annoying, anxious, immature follower of Christ is your brother or sister in Christ. This being on the bridge isn't about you. It's about us getting across together. And then in chapter 15, verse 3, Paul gives the example A of someone who didn't please himself. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's talking about his whole life. Now, Paul brings Jesus up at this point because we need a really strong antidote. To the poison of contempt and judgmentalism that runs in our blood since the fall of Adam and Eve. And the only antidote that's strong enough is not going to tolerance workshops and mandatory sensitivity training. The, the antidote that's really strong enough is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. How did he treat us? How did he welcome us? Well, you go back to some of the earlier portions of Romans, and that's all explained there, but it basically says we were weak, we were sinful, we were living like enemies of God, and Christ didn't leave us in the dust. He came back for us. He bore our sins on the cross. He welcomed us when we were least worthy of being welcomed. As Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel And now we're called to just live that out. Back in chapter 14, in one of the verses we actually omitted, it says, Paul calls Christians to walk in love. Then he said, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's a great phrase. So in Christian community now, every person I meet is the one for whom Christ died. You are the one for whom Christ died a person that I really disagree with very strongly on issues, that is the one for whom Christ died. The one that (coughs) I think is weak or annoys me or I think is immature, that is the one for whom Christ died. It changes the way you look at people. You see, this passage addresses an issue in our culture that we're really struggling with, and that is, how do you love someone and yet... Disagree with them. Now, this applies to secondary and non negotiable issues as well, but it's like, how do you radically accept somebody and yet challenge them to grow? Well, you welcome them as Christ has welcomed you. Let me give you an example of somebody that did that to me. Um, When I was moving from Long Island about five years ago, um, there was a guy in the church, an older guy in the church named John. And John was a builder, and he had actually, he was, a, he was in construction and actually done really well. He helped us invest in our home. Otherwise, there's no way we could afford a home on Long Island. And when I was, um, when we were getting ready to move and sell the house, um, I was telling John, he's like, man, I, this is a real, this is a disaster. We're going to lose money on the house, and I don't have any money. I don't have any savings, And so John said, well, Matt, why don't you tell me a little bit more about your financial situation? So he said, I want you to pull together all your financial records, everything. Everything that you have, all your debt, all your assets, and I want you to show them to me. I had never done this to another human being. So I brought a folder full of stuff, and I brought it to John. And it's like, John's going, well, you see, Matt, there's a problem here with your assets and your debt. That is the basic problem here. And you know the shame we feel when we feel like we've failed and we've been exposed and we've been caught? I mean, it was just like that burning shame. But then, you know, John put his arm around me and said, you know, Matt, we're going to get through this together. I'm gonna help you with this. I'm gonna walk with you through, walk with this, walk through this with you. John gave me, extended to me a Christ-like welcome. Not ignoring my issues, not pretending they weren't there, acknowledging them, actually plumbing deep into them, but then practicing radical acceptance in spite of my sin, in spite of my shame. That's the kind of welcome we extend to one another in the body of Christ. So what's the result of this? Where does all this go? Well, look at verse 6 of chapter 15. It says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So people with differences on secondary issues people with profound disagreements on maybe philosophy or strategy, when they welcome each other as Christ has welcomed them, there's oneness in worship. It's expressed in worship. We worship together around the same throne of God. And you know, there's something else that happens too as we begin to welcome each other. There's this other impact. Things just get a little crazy in a good way when we practice welcoming each other. Notice in verses 9 through 12, Paul quotes four times from the Old Testament. And each time he quotes an Old Testament verse predicting that one day Jews and Gentiles will worship together. That the Gentiles will be included and embraced and welcomed into the people of God in this new thing called the church. Now we've got to understand how radical that is. Because Jews and Gentiles, generally speaking, hated each other. They didn't get along. They didn't eat together. And they certainly didn't worship together. And now Paul is saying, as the church begins to be welcomed by Jesus, and as we begin to welcome others, that welcoming has this kind of broad, sweeping, inclusive effect that even people from different socioeconomic statuses, different education levels, but even different cultures get drawn together into one voice in their worship. So that would be as crazy as Guatemalan immigrants waiting to get deported, worshiping with middle-class white evangelicals. Crazy, but good crazy. That would be like African-Americans worshiping with Koreans. It would be like refugees from Burma, Myanmar, worshiping with Nigerians. Paul is saying that this kind of stuff starts to happen when the body of Christ really begins to extend its welcome out further and further. And again, we don't agree on all worship styles or dress or all that kind of stuff, but we have decided this. We belong together. We're part of the family of God. You know, in a few minutes, we have this wonderful way of celebrating and remembering and experiencing how Christ has welcomed us you're gonna be invited to come up for the Eucharist you're gonna be and we believe that Jesus is really here it's not just a symbol it's not just a string around a finger but it's really the presence of Christ and he is really welcoming you this morning and so maybe you had a really bad week maybe you weren't the Christian that you think you should have been Maybe you have some really profound struggles in getting your Christian life together. And yet, Jesus is here, and he's welcoming you. What could be more amazing than that? But as you come, let me ask you this. Let me also ask, how are you doing at welcoming others? You know, this is a time of year where there's a lot of graduation speeches by famous people giving speeches, and a lot of them revolve around just the... The same theme over and over again. Make a difference in the world. Be the change. Do something extraordinary. Don't live an ordinary life. Well, this passage tells us to do something that's really small. But it's really extraordinary and it's really revolutionary. And that is just start to welcome people as Christ welcomed you. Welcome people you would not ordinarily welcome. Welcome people who are outside of your little group. Welcome people who don't dress like you or don't worship like you or don't look like you or don't think like you or vote like you. Welcome people from different cultural backgrounds. Welcome people who you think are undereducated or overeducated. Welcome people who don't do the church the way you think church should be done. Welcome people you think are pretentious or stuck up or weak in their faith. And don't wait for them to welcome you. I mean if Christ would have done that all of us would be on the path to hell. So just begin to welcome people. Just begin to be interested in people. Begin to talk to them. I think about all the people in in this church that have done that to me and that have given me that blessing when I came here four years ago and people welcomed me and embraced me. I mean you've This church has done that to me you might think oh that's really scary it's really scary to leave my little group of friends you know I don't know if I can do that I don't know if I want to do that that's too scary well let me just remind you of our gospel reading Jesus is telling Peter get out of the boat come to me maybe this is one way you need to get out of the boat so You want to do something that's going to really change the world? Look at everyone here this morning. Look at everybody you meet and say, that's the person for whom Christ died. That's the one whom Christ died for. And then treat them accordingly. I promise you if you do that, people will never be the same. They will never be the same to you. You will never be the same. And we as a